Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, our guests tonight uh, we're super excited about. Um, both have new books um, that, I mean, as I'm sure most of you know and will hear, uh, overlap a bit, both thematically and, um, well, you'll see. Um, but uh, first, Gideon Lewis Krauss um, has written for a whole slew of places, um, Harper's The Believer, The New York Times Book Review, N Plus One, McSweeney's, Book Forum, The Nation, Slate, um, and many other places. Um, and his new book, A Sense of Direction, um, is just such a great read and has garnered some really great reviews like uh, Gary Steingart <laughs> saying, I don't know if you like this or not, but I do. <laughs> um, as if David Foster Wallace had written Eat, Pray, Love. Um, <laughs> I'm really curious to know how, whether you <laughs> like that comment or not. Um, it's also garnered praise from, he doesn't know this yet, but his sixth grade teacher who called earlier today from Scotch Plains, New Jersey um, <laughs> to have a book signed and wish him the very best. So um, he'll have to do that later. Um, also, we have Tom Bissell here uh, with his newest book, Magic Hours. He's also been published and writes for just about everywhere, um, but also has written the books Extra Lives, Chasing the Sea, God Lives in St. Petersburg, uh, Petersburg, and the Father of All Things, um, winner of numerous awards, um, and just a fabulous, fabulous writer. Now that he lives in LA and not Brooklyn, um, this is his second event here in, I think, like four weeks, and if it were up to us, he really would be back here like once a week and we might find a way to make him do that. So please help me welcome first Tom Bissell. Hello. Um, this is a shockingly big crowd. Thank you all for coming out. Um, so I'm going to read um, a half of an essay uh, called Cinema Crudite, which is about Tommy Wiseau's film The Room. So before I decide which half of the film, uh, the essay to read, I need to ask how many people know what The Room is? Okay, how many people have seen The Room? Okay, so here's, here's my dilemma for you guys. Do you want the first half of the essay, or do you want the second, funnier half of the essay that relies upon less knowledge of the film, but excuse me, that relies upon more knowledge of the film. You know, I, I, I'm going to put this to a vote. Who wants first half introduction to the room part of the essay? Anyone? Anyone? Who wants funnier second half of the essay? Okay, here we go. There's a weird echo. A weird echo? Is that a... Can anyone else hear that? Do you want me just to do that? No. No? 
No, I mean, can, can you guys hear me if I just read like this? Yeah. yeah. All right. Get that out of here. Thank you for the weird echo announcement. All right. <laughs> so Tommy Wiseau is a guy that spent $6 million of his own money making a film called The Room that was released in 2003. It is famously one of the worst films ever made. And he seems curiously unaware of this fact. And um, I kind of got interested in this, the cult around this movie. It's, it's now like playing in dozens of cities around the United States. It plays all over the world. It packs them in everywhere. And the film has kind of become this bizarre uh, object of devotion amongst a lot of young people, especially. A part of the, the half the essay I'm not going to read uh, kind of tries to account for what, why, why this film is so weird. Tommy Rousseau uh, was not born in the United States, is a lot older than he claims to be, and doesn't appear to have seen any film made after 1956. <laughs> so his idea of like good movie making and good acting is outdated, I guess, I guess would be the kind word for that. But he's, he, he made a movie that, as I tried to describe it, it's the movie that an alien would have made <laughs> who'd never seen a movie, but it had movies explained to him thoroughly. <laughs> And so for, for this essay, I kind of tracked him down. I went and met him in a Beverly Hills delicatessen. And, uh, and this is kind of an account of, of our meeting. Tommy Wiseau is not, in any sense, an easy interview. I got in touch with him through his website, after which a man named John, the administrator of Wiseau Films, requested that I write up all the questions I intended to ask Wiseau during our interview. I emailed back a long and, I hope, thoughtful email explaining why I did not work that way and why I preferred to meet and simply have a conversation. Unmoved, John, who's bludgeoned English, does your piece is for print and or online view, no, it's even better, does your piece is for print or slash and online viewing, and piece is misspelled, <laughs> bore a telling resemblance to that of one T. Wiseau, emailed back a request to submit my interview questions beforehand. I made another equally thoughtful argument as to why I did not want to do that. John responded with another identical request to submit my interview questions. So I did. A few days later, I was apprised of the time and place where Wiseau and I would meet. Although the address John gave me turned out to be wrong, I managed to find the appointed Beverly Hills delicatessen. Wiseau, riding shotgun and exactly on time, pulled up to the deli in a silver SUV of the roommovie.com decal, decal on the rear passenger side window. His flyaway, hair looked <clears throat> his flyaway hair looked as though it had been soaked in printer ink, and I had not seen skin so pale outside of Edmonton, Alberta in February. His lips were nearly colorless, his, his jaw as large and square as a shovel. He was wearing a heavy green jacket that looked too warm for Los Angeles in September, dun-colored cargo pants with a complicatedly studded belt, and combat boots. Now I'm terrified that Tommy Wiseau is going to walk in. I don't know why. I just, I just am. I just am. The overall effect was that of a vampire who had joined the Merchant Marine. Wiseau took off his jacket once we sat down, revealing a black tank top identical to the one Johnny, his character, dons briefly in the room. Wiseau had been in anatomy model shape at the time of the room's filming and remains so today. One of my first questions concerned the mysterious John. I asked if he was a young Hollywood assistant type. You may say that, Wiseau said. He's doing freelance. He has limited hours. He laughed, all but admitting the ruse. After some initial chit-chat, I asked Wiseau if he had any friends he could put me in touch with. Someone, I said, who could help fill out the personal side of Tommy Wiseau. 
I have dozens of friends, was so said, but this is your job. It's not my job to suggest. <laughs> but I don't know your friends. I'm not here to say, talk to this person about me. That's nonsense. This was, I told, was so fairly standard procedure. Yeah, and I'm against that. You know, this is your, you're a journalist, but I'm not a private investigator. <laughs> You don't need to be private investigator. You can go to screening. You can talk to many people about the room, about me, whatever. He shrugged. That's a perfect Tommy so by the way. <laughs> he shrugged. You can go in so many different angles, if you ask me. <laughs> by this, was so meant one angle, as he refuses to answer any questions about his personal life. Nevertheless, I made a few anemic lunges. The intensity of the scorn the film heaps upon Lisa, and it must be said, women in general, Lisa's a character in the film, has led many to assume that the room is Wiseau's revenge upon a former lover. When I asked about this, Wiseau replied with the same answer he had given many journalists, that the room is a perfect mirror of the human experience, etc. But he did claim that he used to be married and once lived in San Francisco. That was as deep as he was willing to let me go. I speak French, he said. I speak, you know, another language and English, and I understand some other languages. This another language was, no doubt, that of his native country, which I pressed him to reveal. <laughs> when he refused, I began throwing out former communist bloc states. Romania? Hungary? Wrong, actually, he said. He did admit, or seemed to admit, that his homeland was a few countries, which led me to guess that he was from the former Yugoslavia. I'm an American, he said, and I want to be treated as an American. You may say whatever you want. I think we are entitled to our privacy in America. America is among Wiseau's major talking points. We are Americans, he told me, and we cherish our freedom. Americanness is also the central and centrally unexamined theme of the room. Wiseau cast himself within the film as a hunk of Johnny Americana with no corresponding recognition of how absurdly ill-fitting this role actually is. <laughs> Whenever the film's Johnny throws a football, you just have to see the film to really know. <laughs> Whenever the film's Johnny throws a football, you do not see Johnny. What you see is the ungainly shot put of an Eastern European who did not grow up throwing footballs. <laughs> this is the most longingly human aspect of the room and not at all coincidentally the hardest thing to laugh at. The two most asked questions about Wiseau concern his age and the origins of the personal fortune he used to fund the room. As of the first, his Wikipedia page lists his age at 41, though he looks as though he is in his early 50s. I am 30-something, Wiseau told me. <laughs> As to the source of his money, one uncorroborated story has to do with those vaguely sinister-sounding involvement in some sort of Asian market clothing import concern. Chinese jeans, possibly? <laughs> According to Wassell, I used to design jackets, leather jackets, a long time ago. I've been designing, selling, whatever. <laughs> whatever the precise truth about Wassell's past, Whereas the precise truth about Wiseau's past is never going to be as interesting as the rumors. My second favorite, Wiseau is an erstwhile Serbian warlord. <laughs> My favorite, Wiseau is a cyborg from the future. <laughs> His evasiveness bizarrely extends into the most mundane matters, as when I asked him about whether he had made contact with any of, any of his celebrity fans. If I say I met a big director, and I'm not dropping any names, I've met everybody for your information. So if I met, let's say, one of the big directors who's from New York, just to give you a clue, he has business in Santa Barbara, you see. So you can assume who is this person, because there's only one. I have no idea who or what he was talking about. 
But surely, I said, there were actors, writers, or directors that he drew inspiration from. Again, he said, I don't want to drop the names because you'll be blogging about it. <laughs> All I eventually wrung, wrung from Wiseau was that he admired the work of Tennessee Williams, Orson Welles, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean, and that he had recently seen Twilight and was seeking investors in a vampire film he wanted to shoot in Austin, Texas. At this news, I confess, I restrained myself from writing a check payable to Wiseau films right then and there. <laughs> the critic Robert Hughes once said, the greater the artist, the greater the doubt. Perfect confidence is granted to the less talented as a consolation prize. <laughs> I thought about this maxim more than once during my lunch with Wiseau. When he talks about his work, the explanations range from more or less normal. The room was done to provoke the audience. That's the bottom line to puzzling, and you see, in entertainment, we have such limited presentation. You have comedy, you have drama, you have melodrama, and that's about it, basically. To incomprehensible, you see, black comedy is related to melodrama, leans toward melodrama, but it is not melodrama. That's the difference. So it's realism, if you really think about it. Melodrama is not real, but they are all... I know. <laughs> but they are always Jesuitically certain. I tried several times to formulate a humane way of asking Wiseau how he felt to be locked out out of all artistic time and space, but he could not answer because he, of course, <coughs> fails to see it that way. The, thing I wanted to know, the things I wanted to know about the room could never be addressed by Wiseau. The intentional fallacy made flesh. Wiseau, who is by own admission is as demanding and finicky as Samuel Beckett, told me in one breath that he is prone to firing anyone who deviates from his vision. I deal with it in a very simple way. I say, you see the door there? Go through it and don't come back. <laughs> and in the next said, if the studio decided to hire me, for example, I will say, sure, tell me what to do. I'm ready. When I said I imagined he would have a hard time working within traditional studio confinements, was so disagreed. I can make millions, he said. This hard-nosed and eccentric control freak is also a craven sellout. The contradictory tension between these cells would surely drive mad anyone who was aware of them. I believe that Wiseau believes he could make a studio film. I am probably not alone among Wiseau's fans when I say I would happily watch anything he commits to film other than that. When I asked Wiseau about his fan base, he said, talking to the fans is fun. I'm thrilled by it. I really enjoy it. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people around the country have worked to get the room into theaters and promote it on their own time. Did Wiseau have intense feelings of gratitude and connection to those people? Oh, yeah, he said, leaning back. Absolutely. That's a pretty interesting statement that you're saying right now. That's correct. <laughs> people want to be involved with promoting the room for some reason, for nothing, basically. And that's weird, I said, isn't it? It is, but I'm very happy with that. <laughs> As to the discordant matter of negative reviews, Wiseau attributed all such reactions to the room to tripping critics, who were to tripping critics, none of whom understand that by design any movie has to entertain people. They think they hurt me because they say something negative. No, they hurt themselves because they're not true to the audience. For the first time during our talk, Wiseau became agitated. This is what I'm furious about. The people writing, they don't know anything about acting. They don't understand the concept that entertainment is about something you take from yourself and give to people and let people decide what they want to do. There's nothing wrong when people say, oh yeah, I don't like your movie, but I like this little shot, or oh, you have heavy accent. 
But then you have people who actually go that extra mile and say, I hate it. Why do you write about something if you hate it? Why do you spend so much time? Because you're not honest with yourself. Because no, you're not hating. It's because I, as director, open certain doors for you and you don't want to be there. That's why. <laughs> Wiseau's contention that his critics do not want to be in the room to which the room leads is correct. <laughs> but in a perfectly Wiseauian move, correct for reasons he does not and probably cannot recognize. We are all of us deeply alarmed by the Wiseauian parts of ourselves, the parts of us that are selfish and controlling, that crave attention at any cost, that imagine ourselves as superlatively gifted, that arrange all the sources of light, whether literal or metaphysical, to be flattering. To watch the room is to see that part of ourselves turned mesmerizingly loose. During lunch, he was heroically without shame as he described his plans to turn the room into a Broadway show. It will be musical. People say it's comedy, but I don't care what they want to say. A cartoon based on the same characters. However, they will be approached for kids. And a video game. You can be Johnny, you can be Lisa, you can do whatever you want. Like play football, for example. He then startled me by saying, my idea has always been that I want 90% of Americans to see the room. That's the idea I have. <laughs> I looked at him. 90%, I asked. If only to make sure he did not say 9%. 90%, absolutely. At this, I all but laughed in his face. Good luck. Because 10%, you see, it's the kids, and it's R-rated, and they're not supposed to see it. You want every adult to see it. I think so, yes, that's the goal. I don't think everyone has even seen Snow White. I'm not concerned with other movies. I'm concerned only about the room at this time. If that's your analogy, that's fine with me, but yes, absolutely, we will beat Snow White. <laughs> Bigger than Snow White. He grew preposterously thoughtful. It's not a question of bigger. Every American should see the room. You realize, I said, how ridiculous that sounds. <laughs> no, he said, it's not at all. A month after our meeting, I attended a midnight Hollywood screening of the room in Los Angeles, to which Wiseau showed up in a state of inebriation somewhere between Richard Yates drunk and Keith Richards stoned. He delivered an impenetrable speech to the several hundred people waiting in line, attempted to return to the safe confines of the lamely Sunset Five Theater, found that he had been locked out, made the best of it, threw off his jacket, and proceeded to play football with a few audience members. <laughs> At one point, he launched... In, football has a really like long involvement with this movie. At one point, he launched an impressively long bomb that, unfortunately, hit a young woman in the face. <laughs> Several of her friends assured her that this was, in its way, an honor. <laughs> During the pre-screening Q&A, he seemed particularly angry and defensive about a recent Los Angeles Times profile of him and lashed out at one member of the audience who asked him to recite one of Shakespeare's sonnets, which was so he'd previously been happy to do. He abruptly ended the Q&A when he was asked for his views on healthcare reform. <laughs> the whole ordeal was so crushingly sad that during the screening, I barely laughed. At one point in the film, Johnny is sitting on the edge of his bed after Lisa has announced her intention to leave him. When Johnny says, in a childlike falsetto, I haven't got a friend in the world. I confess to having felt a pre-lacrimal tickle in the back of my throat. Whether Tommy Wiseau is evolved or stupid, brave or blind, his work makes me and thousands of others feel catastrophically alive. 
Whatever he tried to do, he clearly failed. And whatever he succeeded in doing has no obvious name. Sincere surrealism? Sincerealism? But the room's last remaining ritual of audience participation might be for everyone to imagine seeing one's most deeply personal attempt at self-expression raised by a hurricane of laughter. Most of us, I think, would fare more poorly than was so. That night in Los Angeles, he was as famous and well-loved as he has ever been, and nevertheless seemed like an unfortunate cultic animal we had all come together to stab at the stroke of midnight. We were laughing because we were not him, and because we were. Please just keep applauding for Gideon Lewis Krauss. That was a tough act to follow. <laughs> um, so, in my attempt to follow it, I'm going to read about Tom. <laughs> um, I don't really think this needs any context. Tom and I are... Uh, Tom and I are about to walk across Spain. It's just after six in the morning on the 10th of June, around the time that the sunlight through the windows of the clubs in Berlin gets too enterprising to ignore, when Tom and I follow our first yellow arrows en route to the end of the world. The yellow arrows are dashed out in spray paint every 10 or 15 feet. Sometimes they indicate turns. Mostly, they just remind you to keep going. There are far more of them than any pilgrim would really need. Right away, we begin to gesture at the hidden and the faded ones. We worry when it seems like we haven't seen one in a while. The arrows free you from needing a map or a sense of the terrain. They're not symbols of direction, they are directions. They free you from needing pretty much anything. You can just show up and start walking. You just let yourself be ushered forward by the arrows, and by the third or fourth one, it already feels great to make zero decisions about where you're going, or when you'll get there, or what you'll do when you arrive. A deep fog ahead of us obscures the looming mountains. For the next 800 kilometers, we will join fellow pilgrims in the ritual of ruing the misery of this first day, the seven or nine or 11 hours of unbroken uphill. But in the end, they would always smile and say, as hard as it was, it was all worth it for those spectacular views. Our view is a 360 degree panorama of freezing fluffed velvet fog. John Briarley is a pilgrim's guide to the Camino de Santiago, a practical and mystical manual for the modern day pilgrim, with which we would soon develop a complicated and hostile relationship. <laughs> Warns us against attempting the first day's mountain path in inclement weather but we just shrug and shoulder our packs and charge ahead into the frozen stifle of mist. We don't see ourselves as the sort of pilgrims who worry about a little weather. We also don't see ourselves as we set out as the sort of pilgrims whom other pilgrims make a habit of passing, but it's a self-image we're quickly encouraged to revise. We see almost nobody else in the 6 a.m. fog, but over the first hour or two, other pilgrims begin to fall in behind us. Then consistently, and with minimal effort, waltz right by, <laughs> offering cheery greetings of Buen Camino as they hurry along in droves. 
Norwegians, Finns, Spaniards, Germans, old people, <laughs> all bound together by the lazy confidence with which they pass us. We take a long break at lunchtime, stare into the mist caping the Pyrenees in cold, flocculent silence. I look a little wistfully at the other pilgrims sailing by, pilgrims who slept until noon, pilgrims with prosthetic limbs and debilitating hangovers. <laughs> Tom narrows his eyes. This isn't a race, he says. One time, I say to Tom as we begin to walk again, I saw an episode of this TV show, Man vs. Beast, in which a man and a giraffe were competing in a sprint. The first color commentator remarks that the man's strategy has got to be getting out there and running as fast as he possibly can. <laughs> the second color commentator responds that the giraffe strategy has to be realizing that it is in a race. <laughs> and that, Tom, is the parable of the giraffe. I can't say I like what you're getting at, says Tom. Well, I'm not serious, or at least not totally serious, but it's comforting to think about this competitively, you know? I mean, at least it presents us with a reason to be walking across Spain. Because it is such an absurd errand, Tom and I seek solace in our most obvious brief as writers, documentation. Tom looks down at the muddy path and says he's going to describe the sheep droppings as black scarabs of shit. He stops to write that down in his little black notebook, pleased with himself. It's already late morning and I've taken no notes yet, so I stop too to write down that Tom is pleased with himself. I've got the same little black notebook. I'm suddenly afraid that he's noticing more than I am, making more unusual and interesting observations about the scenery and the conversation. So in an effort to catch up, I jot down a bunch of lush descriptions of the mist and the narrow mud path. Our ambition is already narrowing, tailoring itself to this simple life. I look at Tom, wait, but isn't the point of a trip like this maybe to provide an escape from such self-consciousness? Are we dooming ourselves from the start by constantly wondering why we're doing this, constantly recording the lyrical appearance of every piece of ungulate shit? <laughs> I have to say I think I'm less worried, Tom says, about issues of self-consciousness here and more worried about these blisters I already have and when we're going to get to the top of this mountain and how I'm going to do this for another month. <laughs> we're climbing what, if we could see more than seven feet ahead of us, would surely be identifiable as a sheer rock face. The bleachy mist kicks with the haunches of half-visible sheep. We stroll by something or other commemorating the glorious victory or death of someone or other. Tom develops his fourth, fourth blister, and I take his heavy pack for a while. He claims I'm just doing it so I can represent myself as a hero later. <laughs> Which was true. <laughs> we achieve the pass after about nine hours, which, according to the helpful and insulting signage, ought to have taken about five. We're finally above the clouds and can see the loping green hills of the Basque country below us. We nap briefly in the sun before heading down the steep, shady downhill to the albergue or Pilgrim's Hostel. The major etiquette point en route is the phrase Buen Camino. It's a salutation and a valediction, but its most important role is in establishing boundaries. You're walking along and you see another pilgrim. Maybe he stopped for a little while, or 
more likely we stopped for a little while. And now there's some promise or threat of social interaction. After all, you're both headed in the same direction. Buen Camino is the universally respected conversation ender. You might say hello and immediately get a Buen Camino. Or you might have 10 minutes of conversation about where you're from and where you started. We started in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, which is more or less considered doing the whole thing. But some people start in Paris or St. Petersburg. And lots of people, despicably shiftless and inauthentic people, start down the line in Burgos or Lyon or Ponferrada, and then bam, Buen Camino. Or you walk together for a few hours or even a few days or weeks, or some people get married. But you can always Buen Camino yourself out of a situation at any time. It gives all exchanges a nice dangerous quality and contributes to a direct fearless ambiance. The flip side is that if you're not soonishly Buen Caminoed, you feel invited to be as candid and probing as you like. On the Camino, two or three exchanges exhaust the possible small talk. And at that point, you're either going to talk about your divorce or your layoff, or you're just going to stroll on alone. We get Buen Caminoed with some frequency. <laughs> First is Fabrizio, a breezily healthy Italian who's been walking already for four weeks since Le Puy, a medieval hub in central France. He says it's been a little lonely. Pilgrims on the long French stretches are much fewer and farther between, but now that he's past Saint-Jean, he's happy there are so many more people to talk to. I can't imagine doing this alone, and I'm grateful to be walking with Tom, who's so funny and agreeable and generous, if a little slow. <laughs> So why are you doing the Camino, Tom asked Fabrizio. I did it last year too, and I think it's good to clear the mind and cleanse the blood. Fabrizio makes a squeegee motion that signals amateur dialysis. <laughs> I will probably do it again next year, though next year I think I take the Camino del Norte. I moved to Bologna in the fall to study philosophy. Tom laughs, then apologizes for laughing. <laughs> Tom has a dim view of the ambitions of Italians. <laughs> Buen Camino, Fabrizio says, and picks up his face. <laughs> On our second day, we're sitting in the sun at an outdoor cafe in the center of a Basque village and making fun of what looks like their national typeface, which is distinguished by a crowned A. It looks, Tom says, after considering it from all angles, like a Tiki Torch Brady Bunch Goes to Hawaii end credits font. <laughs> the kid at the table next to us starts to laugh, and we're flattered he finds us funnier than everybody else seems to. As we get up to keep walking, he adopts us. His name is Ben, and he's from Belgium, and he's 23. He says he hitchhiked from his home near Ghent, and that it took him two days to get to Saint-Jean. In America, Tom says, hitchhiking is unusual and dangerous. Yes, I say, when you hitchhike in America, you either get murdered or end up murdering the driver. <laughs> it's a tense contest, Tom says. Ben looks at us with a rich sort of pity and condescension. Tom changes the subject by asking why he's doing the Camino. Well, my mom did it, and my brother did it, and my uncle did it, and you meet people from all over Europe, and it's cheap. I think I can do the entire Camino, one month of travel, for less than 500 euros. We walk by a little riot of newborn sheep and throw some unripe figs over a fence to an old goat. We sit on a log in the shade, and Ben shares his croissants and Nutella. After 10 minutes, Ben looks eager to resume the walk, but Tom wants to rest his decaying feet a while longer. <laughs> 
There are two main strategies for walking the Camino, I say to Ben. The first way is to walk quickly, but take frequent short breaks, or infrequent long ones. The second is to walk slowly, but to take few breaks, or only short ones. But our way is to walk slowly and take frequent long breaks. <laughs> Buen Camino, Ben says. Do you want to take questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Tom and I are happy to take some questions. And then um, afterwards, for anybody who wants to join us, we're going to go back to Tom's place at Hollywood and Vine and hang out and drink alcohol. Um, and we can tell you more about anything you want to know about that. So you're all more than welcome to come since we know most of you. And <laughs> the people that we don't know, we hope you will hurt us. <laughs> Buen Camino. <laughs> uh, any, any, any questions, anyone? Don't make me get up for nothing. <laughs> Did you hear from Tommy Wiseau after uh, this was published? I just wrote a book about Tommy Wiseau. Um, do you guys, you know the movie? Uh, I've not seen it, I know about it. So uh, a guy, so I, I wrote this piece, and then a guy named Greg Sestero, who played Mark, uh, got in touch with me. And it's Greg, Greg, are you here? Uh, I thought he might be here. So Greg um, got in touch with me and said, hey, I read your piece. I loved it. I want to write a book about what it was like to make this movie. and to be." He was friends with Tommy for years beforehand and has been friends with him years afterwards. And I was like, dude, I don't want to write your memoir, you know? But just the more Greg and I talked, the more I realized that the story is just so bonkers. And, and like Tommy's such an amazing character. I mean, he's really like one of the world's most unusual people. I mean, hands down. He's fascinating. And Greg has this like really intense friendship with him that's lasted a long time. So I wrote this memoir in Greg's voice. I turned it in to the publisher two weeks ago, and it'll come out next next summer. So um, that wait, but tell them about to uh, Tommy's most recent attempt to get in touch with him. <laughs> so Tommy read the piece, and he knows that Greg and I've been working on this book. And whenever Tommy meets a writer going around doing publicity for the room, he assumes that every writer he meets knows me personally. So he tells them to make sure you tell Tom uh, Basho that, um, that I am an American citizen and that I will sue him for deprivation of character if he does not retract his statements. What those statements are, I don't know. But, uh, um, I am very confident that a year from now I will be getting sued. So uh, I won't be getting sued, but Simon and Schuster will be getting sued, and I look forward to their lawyers finding that out. So uh, yeah, so to, I wrote this book about the room, and, and uh, it was really fun. I think it's a really weird book. It's a, kind of like a Hollywood memoir that has, doesn't really exist, you know. Um, so uh, we'll see. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Uh, just wondering how you guys met. <laughs> uh, actually, we met um, in the spring of 2003 when Tom had just published his first book, and I was working at a bookstore in Berkeley after graduating from college, and I introduced Tom at the bookstore. He did, and so normally when you, you do these things, the introduction is very, you know, kind of brief because the you know people are like, let's let the writer get out there. But Gideon, <laughs> 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 it sounds 
like a criticism. It's not, I swear to God. Gideon gets up there and he reads this like unbelievably like beautiful and heartfelt like mini essay about about my book. I don't even think my parents read it as carefully. And so I was like, this this Gideon Lewis Krauss is a young man to watch out for. Um, and then I'd like to think I had a small hand in Gideon's career as a writer because I think the first big piece you ever wrote. Yeah, first piece period. The first, yeah. the first piece he ever wrote um, was kind of on the brink of being published or not published. Yeah. And he kind of sent it to me in a panic. And we didn't really know each other that well, but I started reading it. And I was like, holy shit, this is good. And so I gave it my, you know, my kind of once over editorially. And I sent it back to Gideon. And like a day later, Gideon had like taken my editorial suggestions for like the first 10 pages and of course it, he wrote like a 70 page essay but uh, <laughs> he took those first 10 pages of edits and he like compressed this thing and it, I think it became like yeah, it, worked out. it was his first big piece it was about the MLA it was in the Believers anyone remember this piece it was it was a terrific piece and so ever since then we kind of been like uh, we've been pals and uh, and then we were out of touch for a bunch of years and then I was living in Berlin and Tom was living in Estonia and he couldn't leave Estonia because he didn't have a visa. I'd overstayed my visa. Um, and he was driving himself crazy alone in Estonia. So I went to visit. Um, I mean, really still barely knowing him then. And then at some point over the next four days that I have almost no recollection of, um, he was like, let's walk across Spain next summer. And I apparently committed to this. And then some months later, I got this email that was like, all right, we start in June. And... Um, at that point, I couldn't argue with that. Yeah, and so then we, we, we literally spent 24 hours a day for 38 days yeah, together. Like that, yeah. And uh, that we didn't want to kill each other at the end of that suggested to me that we were, um, yeah. Was there any debate about who got to write a book first about <laughs> the point of the So I was... There's I've, a lot of time in there. I've been working on this book about the tombs of the Twelve Apostles for a long time. So I went to all of them. One of them is at the end of this fucking Camino. <laughs> uh, and so I walked, so the whole point was for me to research my, my, my book, right? And, and then when I, and I still have not finished that book. I haven't even gotten to that chapter yet. Um, but um, reading Gideon's book, I was like, ah, I'm not gonna write about it because he, he already did it. And he did it like, you know, well, yeah, so what's the point? So. Um, and there's a great line in here too, because I've kind of been struggling with this book. You work on something for six years, and you begin to you know wonder about what the hell you're doing. And there's just tons of church description. And Gideon has this amazing one sentence where he's just like, you know, <laughs> who gives a shit? And I read that and I was like, yeah, who gives a shit? Why did I spend all this time describing churches? Kill me, you know. So um, Gideon's book has actually influenced this ongoing project of mine in a lot of a lot of ways. Gideon, I understand that a lot of, that you write emails to people? <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. Then, did, and then they become part of the book? Well, most of this book was written uh, in its first draft as a series of emails along the way to many people who are in this room. Um, uh, not for any reason except to really keep myself going um, as I was going along. That I just knew that if I were making notes and not actually sitting down to do anything with it that I would be lazy and it would take me months to get around to typing up my notes. Whereas I thought, well, if I'm, you know, if, like, I, if I sit down and write this as emails as I go along, it'll be just like a way to commit myself to working. But that also, I like the idea of 
forcing myself to be entertaining in an email um, and knowing that like people would just stop reading the emails if they were boring. Um, and then nobody read my emails from Japan. Um, but those were somewhat less entertaining than these were. Let me tell my half of that story. <laughs> so I would col we would collapse. Uh, we stayed in an appalling number of hotels on the Camino. You're not supposed to. <laughs> but we would just we'd see like a hotel. And we'd be like, yeah. And we, would just, we, we would walk in. It was just, it was despicable. We were not very good pilgrims in that sense. So I would collapse in, in the bed. And Gideon's like, I'm going to go check the business center, check email. And so I would like nap. And then, like, I would wake up, and I would go check my email, and Gideon would be still typing away, and I would have an email, and I click, and it'd be from Gideon. It'd be like an 8,000 word. I'm like, when the hell did you write this? He's like, just now. And I'm like, oh, my God. We had some fights about those he will, emails. He will bury us all. Um, I couldn't believe it. And it was good. That's, that was the most enraging thing. They were good. You know? I mean, they were, like, really funny and and and... I was just stunned that he could just sit in like I can't even write if I can hear like a bird, um, <laughs> and yet he he's sitting in like these crowded internet cafes or business centers and hotels just like peeling this stuff off. It was amazing. Thank you. I don't know. Shall we? Yeah. Shall we put a sword? Thank in there? you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.